Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I've opened my Bible this morning to the ninth chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. I want us today to notice one of the wonderful names of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And let's begin by reading Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Here is a prophecy of the Messiah written some 700 years before Jesus was born. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is a very familiar prophecy of the Messiah. It tells us that the child that was born, the child of hope, if you please, is also a son given. The little babe in Bethlehem's manger, born to Joseph and Mary, was actually the eternal son of God, given to all the family of God. For unto us, Joseph and Mary might have said, a child is born. But you and I can join in the second part of this, unto us, a son is given. The Son of God was given as the gift of the Father's everlasting love to every one of those that were chosen in Christ before time began. And notice this child is going to bear the weight of government upon his shoulders and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now I've met people before that felt as if they had the weight of the world on their shoulders. Maybe you're there this morning. But I'm glad to tell you, dear friends, that you don't have to feel like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulder because there's one who is carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders and he can handle it. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And notice these wonderful names. His name shall be called Wonderful. Now that's actually a proper noun in this passage. It's not an adjective. You'll notice in many religious circles today, they add the word wonderful to the word counselor. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, as if this is the kind of counselor he is, a wonderful counselor. But wonderful stands on its own. His name shall be Wonderful. That is, he's full of mystery. He's full of amazement. He's full of wonder. He's wonderful in his person. He's wonderful in his work. He's wonderful in his life of ministry. He's wonderful in his sacrificial death. He's wonderful in his state of humiliation. He's wonderful in his state of exaltation at the right hand of the Father this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ baffles human understanding. He is full of wonder. His name shall be wonderful. Counselor. That word means comforter advisor, guide, and teacher. The Lord Jesus is the great teacher and guide of his people. 
He is our comforter who stands beside us and counsels us. Then it says the mighty God, the everlasting Father. There's a unity between the Son and the Father from all eternity past. And then I want us to notice this title, the Prince of Peace. Now there's not a more sublime and salutary concept than peace. The word speaks of harmony, order, unity, consensus, tranquility. In a world of strife and tension and alienation and division, I dare say peace is a precious commodity. It's very rare, isn't it? And notice how this concept of peace is coupled with this regal or royal idea. He's the prince of peace. Now the Hebrew word prince speaks of a leader, a chief, a ruler. It's a title of exaltation. It suggests someone whose reign as king is characterized by peace and prosperity. He's the prince. He's the king. He's the governor. Notice the government shall be upon his shoulder. He bears the weight of leadership. He is in charge. He's the sovereign. And the next verse says of the increase of his government and peace. Notice his reign will be characterized by peace. And all that that concept includes, which is prosperity, health, safety, rest from war. The king, the prince, will bring peace. Interestingly, Israel had a king named Solomon who was a king of peace. The word Solomon derives from the word peace or the word shalom. Solomon and shalom are from the same basic Hebrew root. And Solomon's reign was characterized by peace. Now we know that wasn't true of the kings previous to him. King Saul was a man of war. Saul fought battles against the Philistines and against the Amalekites. There was war and military conflicts during his 40 years on the throne of Israel. And David was a man who shed much blood. That is, he was a man of war. David was a mighty warrior and hero and champion of the Jewish people. But King Solomon, his reign was characterized by peace and prosperity. In fact, this was the golden age in the history of the nation of Israel when King Solomon reigned as king. They were not troubled like they had been in the previous two administrations. During Solomon's reign, they were not troubled by external conflicts being attacked from the outside, but there was great peace, prosperity, growth, and plenty. And so the Messiah, he says, of the increase of his government... That is, where he rules, there will be territory gained. It's interesting that during Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel expanded to include a large geographic area. And so the Messiah's government, his kingdom, will grow. It will increase. And it says God in his zeal will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know, the kingdom of God has indeed expanded and grown. It started out as 120 disciples in Jerusalem. 
as you read in the first chapter of the book of Acts. But by the time the second chapter of Acts is completed, that number has grown to 3,120. For on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church. By the house of Cornelius, 5,000 have been added. What started in Jerusalem spread to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. For now in America, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has existed for the last few centuries, if you please. And it continues today to gain converts here and there. Every time a little child of grace repents of his sins and flees from the world and bows the knee to King Jesus, to the Lordship of Jesus, and says, I want to live according to his word. I want to please him. I'm tired of living for myself. I'm tired of living like the world. I want to follow Jesus. Every time a convert is made and someone comes into the kingdom of God or the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through gospel baptism, I'll tell you, dear friends, his government increases. His territory grows. And you know, the kingdom of God was never meant to be static. It was never meant to stay the same but it was meant to be dynamic, to grow. One of the parables of the kingdom is the kingdom of heaven is likened to a grain of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds. It seems to be insignificant, but he says when it's planted, it grows into a great powerful tree. It grows so that the fowl of the air come and lodge in its branches. He compares the kingdom of heaven to leaven. Now I'll tell you, there aren't many things more aggressive than leaven or yeast which is hid in three measures of meal. So here's a little bit of leaven in a piece of dough. But you know that leaven doesn't just stay the same, but it permeates. It seeks to influence the entire loaf, and it puffs it up, doesn't it? And it doesn't stop until the whole is leavened. One day, my beloved, every knee will bow to him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The fact is, everybody doesn't recognize him as king right now. In fact, I believe God has many children throughout this world who see themselves as enthroned and in authority over their own lives. And they're not living in subjection to the authority or the lordship of King Jesus. But there's coming a day when every earthly monarch will have to dismount his throne. Every earthly king and queen will remove the crown from their brow and cast it at the feet of Jesus Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I look forward to that day. You know, when he was born in Bethlehem, he was born a king. In Matthew chapter 2, Herod asked the question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Jesus is not waiting to be a king. He was a king when he was born into this world. My beloved, his kingdom, his reign is characterized by peace. He's the prince of peace. Now this is the same double thought. You know, you've got peace and then you've got it coupled with this royal title of the prince of peace. This is the same thought in Genesis 49:10. The scepter. Now what's a scepter? It's a king's symbol of authority. He holds in his hand the scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The prophecy says nor a lawgiver from between his feet. That is, Judah's family will be leaders. They will be rulers. They will be kings. They will have authority. 
kingship and authority. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until capital S-H-I-L-O-H, Shiloh, come. Now the word Solomon and the word Shiloh and the word Shalom, again, are all synonyms. They come from the same root. And Shiloh is capitalized here, and it's a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And it means peace giver. Notice how the two thoughts of a king, the scepter from the tribe of Judah, is going to reign until Shiloh, that is the fulfillment, the penultimate person who comes from the line of Judah. Until Shiloh comes, Judah is going to bring into this world the Messiah, and he's going to be a man of peace. He's going to be a prince of peace, a king of peace, a ruler of peace. And it says, unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Instead of being separated and divided and alienated, he's going to bring people together He's going to gather the people to himself. He's the prince of peace. We'll come back to that verse in just a moment, the Lord willing. Turn to another prophecy. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler. There's the thought of a king, a prince, a leader, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting. Notice verse 5. And this man shall be the peace. The ruler, the king, is going to bring peace. This man shall be the peace. When the Assyrian, now the reference to the Assyrian in this passage is a reference to the enemies of God's people. You know that when Micah wrote his prophecy, Literally, historically, the Assyrian nation, the Babylonians, were threatening to invade the promised land. But he says, when the Assyrian shall come into our land, this man shall be the peace. This man, through his reign, is going to repel the enemy. This king will bring peace to the covenant people of God. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then we shall raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Now, this is a wonderful prophecy here in Micah chapter 5, and I know I've referenced it several times over the years. It speaks of the little town of Bethlehem. But thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. It's a little village. It'd be like saying the Messiah came to Varnum town. <laughs> you say, that, that wouldn't happen. It's a little disreputable place, or the Messiah came to Long's. And you'd say, Brother Goins, that's impractical. If the Messiah is going to come, he's going to come to Atlanta or Columbia or Charlotte or Raleigh-Durham or New York City. He sure wouldn't come to Varnum Town. But you see, that's what it was like. The prophecy was that when God sends his king into the world, he's going to come in a very obscure kind of way. He's coming to a disreputable community in the little town of Bethlehem. But you know, from this little town of Bethlehem, a great king was born. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. There are thousands of towns that he could have come from, but the Lord chose Bethlehem, the city of David. You know, I'm sure outside the city limits of Bethlehem, they had a sign that said, birthplace of King David. And then later they might have added to it, and King Jesus. <laughs> because this is where Jesus came. 
But thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though there be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. He's on God's mission. He's doing the Father's bidding. Who shall be the ruler in Israel? And this man shall be the peace. So notice how these twin concepts of the kingly authority of the Messiah plus the fact that he will bring peace are joined together not only in our text in Isaiah 9-6, but in the prophecy of Genesis 49-10, the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. And of course, it reminds us of another man that the book of Hebrews talks about, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 10, named Melchizedek, the most mysterious figure in the Bible. But it says Melchizedek will be king of righteousness, and after that, king of Salem, which means king of peace. Now, Salem is the root of the word Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And you see the connection between the words Shiloh and Shalom and Solomon and Salem. Again, this is an entire family of words. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which means the king of peace, the prince of peace. In other words, where this king is on the throne, peace prevails. Now, I want to ask you, is peace prevailing in our world today? Where sin prevails, there is division and conflict and tension and dispeace. But I'll tell you where Jesus Christ reigns as prince or as king. There is peace, even right now. I want to show you two ways that Jesus brings peace through his reign. And there are two verses I want to compare and contrast in the book of Luke. And you're all familiar with the first one. The first one's Luke 2.14, where the angels saying, glory to God in the highest and what? on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Through the Messiah, the angel said, peace will come on earth. Now, we love that passage, but we wonder, don't we, has that really been fulfilled? Is it possible? Will it be fulfilled? What is he talking about, peace on earth? Because again, I don't see a whole lot of it as I look around on the landscape of history today. The other verse is Luke chapter 19, verse 38. That was Luke 2.14, peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Listen to this, Luke 19.38. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, do you see a difference between those two verses? Both of them speak of glory to God in the highest. But one says peace is on earth, the other says peace is in heaven. And here's the outline for my sermon this morning. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, came first to make peace in heaven, to make peace with God. And once peace with God is made on the vertical plane, then there is peace on earth. You see, peace with God is the first great necessity. It's what is needed more than peace on a relational level between people. We need peace with God. Now here's a fact. By nature... We are at enmity with God. Do you know what the word enmity means? Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Well, it means hostility. The carnal mind is hostile to God. It is antagonistic to God. By nature, every human being is born in this world at war 
in his heart, he's at war with God. He, he doesn't want to do what God says. He wants to do what he wants. He doesn't want to submit to an authority beyond himself. You see, by nature, that's our condition. We're at enmity. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And I want you to notice what Jesus Christ did when he came to the cross. Colossians 1.20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, he says, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Now, do you know what the word reconciled means? To reconcile means to replace enmity with amity, to take two people that are on the outs at odds with each other and to bring them together. And here's the story of the Bible, God and man are at enmity with each other. God is not pleased with man as a result of his sin, and man doesn't want anything to do with God. But Jesus came and stood between us. He came as the go-between, the mediator, and he laid his hand upon God, and he laid his hand upon man, and he could do that because he's both God and man simultaneously. And in his own body on the cross, he reconciled. He took the barriers, the obstacles in our relationship away so that we have peace. It says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. God is not offended at his people anymore because Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God through his death on the cross. And you and I who were enemies and aliens in our minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. What I'm saying, dear friends, is Jesus Christ accomplished peace in heaven, peace with God. That's the first need of the hour. And interestingly, if you look at the introductions to all of the New Testament epistles, they all contain this similar formula, grace and peace be with you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that? Grace and peace. Paul, for instance, would say this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Corinth, grace and peace be unto you from God the Father and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, then peace. Have you ever noticed the sequence of those two words is important? Grace comes first. He didn't say peace and grace, but grace must come first before peace can be accomplished. Grace, then peace. You see that formula in Romans 1, 3? 1 Corinthians 1, 3, 2 Corinthians 1, 2, Galatians 1, 3, Ephesians 1, 2, and on and on throughout all of the New Testament letters, grace and peace. And this is what I'm saying this morning, that grace must first intervene before peace will be the result. Jesus came to reconcile us to God, peace in heaven. And as a result of his work on the cross, now Luke 2.14 says, there's peace on earth. Now, in what sense is there peace on earth? Where can I go, perhaps you ask today, to find peace on earth? Will you find it downtown Raleigh? Will you find it in Washington, D.C., peace on earth? No, my friends, you find people at loggerheads. You find people who are upset with each other. The tension is great, and the conflicts seem like they never end. 
I'll tell you, the first place that there's peace on earth is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of Christ coming into this world. Would you listen now to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14? The apostle has just talked in Ephesians 2 about how the Holy Spirit changes the heart in the new birth. He quickens those who are dead in trespasses and in sins. He works in the hearts of individuals. And when those individuals come together to form a gospel church, here's what happens. But now in Christ Jesus, now he's talking to Gentiles and he's talking about the Jew and Gentile conflict in this passage. You know, don't you, that the Jews and the Gentiles have been at odds for forever, for centuries. The Jews would have nothing to do with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were not permitted to fellowship with the Jews. In fact, he says in verse 11, remember that you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh. And he's talking about ethnic differences. These are differences in ethnicities. He says in verse 11, you that were in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So you were on the outside. They had a commonwealth. The Jewish people had the oracles of God. And he says, you were on the outside. And you were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no part, no inheritance in the true worship of God. Having no hope and without God in the world, watch this, but now in Christ Jesus... You who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Now here's the thought. The new humanity that Jesus Christ has created, if you please, are people, regardless of their ethnic differences, in whose hearts grace has triumphed. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, if God has worked in your heart, he says you can have fellowship together in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is one of the greatest, most wonderful accomplishments in the annals of history, that Jesus Christ has brought people together regardless of their skin tones, regardless of their pigmentation levels, regardless of their cultural backgrounds. My beloved, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a place where peace on earth is evident. You know, that's true even in terms of uh, the primitive Baptist. If you read church history of our Baptist people here in North Carolina, you read the Kahuki Association minutes and the history of Elder Hassel, you know, the association where he ministered. And it was one of the strongest associations of primitive Baptists in the entire country. It has a long heritage and a long history. But if you read that, these churches would often have slaves as members. And the wonderful thing is, even though they were known by their first names, and many of them didn't have a second name, yet they were entitled to, to all of the privileges and the fellowship of the entire church here in our own state. Yes, indeed, my friends, they were included as brothers and sisters in Christ. They sat at the communion table with their fellow believers. They washed feet. They enjoyed the voting privileges of the church. They were, my friends, treated as equals. There was no difference. 
You know, that's what the Bible says. In Jesus Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. You talk about making peace on earth, Jesus did it. And you see it evident in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we should protect the unity and the peace of the church to the best of our ability. We should endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. As Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 says, because you're not going to go many other places in this world and find togetherness and harmony like you do in the church. It is a social experiment that has no equal. There's nothing to compare with it in secular society. Doesn't matter what club you talk about, what organization you talk about, what corporation, there is not the same level of togetherness and harmony that is present in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, or that's the way it should be anyway. And there is a place you can find true peace. You can sit and be treated, my friends, as if you're one of God's children. You see, we're all on the same plane. We're all on the same plane in Adam, by the way. I love the story. I think I've told it to you before about the late Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a medical doctor on Harley Street in London and a very aspiring and, and reputable physician, a, an expert diagnostician. And uh, he left his medical practice and the lucrative career that awaited him to become a minister felt the call of God upon his life. And he spent the next 40 years preaching the gospel and was very close, not exactly where we are as old Baptists, but preached uh, many things that I believe. Lloyd-Jones was once addressing one of the Ivy League schools on one of his trips to America. This is probably in the 1960s or 70s. And his subject that day, as he gave them a 45-minute lecture, was on the depravity of mankind. And they sat and listened. I mean, here are these graduate and postgraduate students and many professors, tenured professors, and people of great you know, academic prowess, scholastics. And Lloyd-Jones is just this preacher, but he's addressing these academics and he's preaching on the depravity of man. And in the Q&A session after his lecture was finished, one of the young students stood up and said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, may I ask a question? He said, absolutely. He said, uh, we sure appreciate you coming and addressing us today. But he said, I have one question. He said, I'm a bit perplexed. You spoke to us as if we're just like everybody else. Did you mean to do that? And Lloyd-Jones' response was, I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> I did it on purpose. Because the fact is, everybody is on the same plane so far as their relationship with God is concerned. We're all Adam multiplied. None of us are worthy of the least of his blood. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is. doesn't matter what your family background. doesn't matter what your economic status, your social score, credit score might be. It doesn't matter, my friends. I'm telling you, we all are in need of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, there is a level playing field. Every mountain has been brought low and every valley has been exalted. The crooked places have been made straight and the rough places plain in Jesus Christ. There is, if you please, true equality in the grace of God. And by the way, there's not a higher position that you can have than to be a child of the King, to be a child of God. You say, well, Brother Goins, I'm the head of this particular institution. Well, I know that you have a lot of responsibility, and that's impressive in so many ways. But in the final analysis, 
Did you know what ultimately matters is how do you stand before God? How do I stand before God? And there's no hope for any of us apart from the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the imputed righteousness of Christ to our account. So where is peace on earth to be found? It's in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition that was between us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Genesis chapter 11, you know, talks about the Tower of Babel and the alienation among human beings as a result of God's judgment. Because man was using his insight and wisdom to revolt against the government of God, they were building a tower to the sky. And the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is not just an architectural experiment. It's a religious statement. It, my friends, is a declaration of independence from God. As Nimrod leads the charge to say, we don't need God, we're going to be our own gods, that was actually a ziggurat, which is a religious temple, a kind of religious temple, the Tower of Babel. And God said, let us go down and confound their languages. And so that they can't understand each other. And sure enough, here's somebody speaking Phoenician and somebody else speaking Portuguese and somebody else speaking Japanese and someone else speaking Spanish and somebody speaking French and English. And, and they, they can't understand each other and the work comes to a grinding halt. And did you know ever since then, each linguistic group went and established their own nations. They established their own cultures, their own communities. Like stayed with like. There was a tribalism. And there has been division and alienation since then. Here's what's happened in human history. As each tribe and nation wants to take some of the other persons, and, but they're also afraid that the other person's going to take theirs. So there's xenophobia. There's fear of the unknown. There's this, we're going to stay to ourselves, you stay to yourselves. And you can still see it in third world countries. You know, I've gone to Africa on two different occasions. And I have to tell you, that's the richest continent on the planet so far as natural resources are concerned. The potential is tremendous, but I'll tell you, they've realized very little of the potential that's available because of tribalism, because they don't trust each other. There's division, there's chaos, there's confusion, there's, there's conflict, there's alienation, separation. But I'll tell you, dear friends, Jesus Christ came into a world of separation and alienation, and he brought peace. And you see that expressed in the church. And then I want to close with this this morning. Not only is there peace expressed in the church so far as human relationships are concerned. You can get along with people who are different than you. You can live together with those who have a different background, a different heritage, a different history in Christ. That's the key. He's the prince of peace. Where he reigns, peace is the result. And I'll tell you, there's peace in the hearts of God's little children. You want to find a place where there's peace on earth? There's peace in the hearts of those who are true believers. First, they're at peace with God. Now, I'll tell you, dear friends, if you're like me, you know that there's something in your heart you probably can remember more prominent than it is now in the past. There's something in your heart that frets against the Lord. Here's an interesting verse in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3 that says, the foolishness of man perverteth his way, and his heart fretteth against the Lord. 
the foolishness of man perverteth his way. He, do, he can't walk a straight line. His path is, is unproductive. His life is full of conflict. And it says, and his heart frets against the Lord. You know what the word fret means? Some of you old timers may remember your grandparents, your grandmother saying, don't fret. You know, people say the Bible just too hard to understand. Well, you understand that, don't you? Don't fret. What does it mean to fret? Well, it means to chafe. It means to rub against the grain. It means something that is antagonistic and uncomfortable. And the heart of man by nature frets against God. Is he at peace with God? No, my friend. But you know, through the gospel, when we hear what Jesus has done, you can be reconciled to God in your heart. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what it means to be justified by faith? It means that when you hear and believe the gospel, my friends, that Jesus is your righteousness, there's a peace that passes all understanding that prevails in your heart. I've experienced that. There was a time when I thought I'm a great sinner and I don't know that there's a remedy for my case, but I heard the good news that Jesus is the savior of sinners, that he took their place that he bore their punishment, that he satisfied the demands of God's law in their stead. And I'll tell you, whenever I believed that, like the publican, I went home to my house justified. You know, the publican came that day to the temple to pray, but he was convicted of his sins. And he couldn't even look God in the eye. He would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but he smote on his breast. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, he went home justified rather than the Pharisee. Now the Pharisee thumbed his lapels and said with little Jack Horner, my, what a good boy am I. Lord, you should be glad I'm on your team. But God didn't bless him. He didn't receive the blessing. It was the man who came and admitted that he didn't have it all under control. That admitted he was a wreck. That admitted he had made a mess of things. It said he went home with peace in his conscience. You know, the story of the Pharisee and the publicans doesn't mean that the publican came to the temple to pray that day at dead sinner and he went home a child of God no he came a convicted sinner a convicted child of God with guilt in his conscience and he went home with peace knowing that Jesus was his mercy seat be merciful to me the sinner the word merciful means be the mercy seat the propitiation instead of looking at himself he's looking at Jesus who took his sins away and nailed them to the cross and my beloved he went home with peace Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, after God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, now he's committed to us the word or the ministry. We preach the gospel of reconciliation. Now he says, now we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God's already done the work of reconciliation. Now you be satisfied with it. You rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's at rest. Now you rest. Why should you, my friend, fret against the good news of the gospel? Just embrace it. Believe it. It's true. It's, you say it's too good to be true. It's good and it's true, my friends. And you ought to believe it and embrace it as true for you. I want to tell you, dear friends, the secret to peace between people in relationships is having peace in your own hearts. Colossians 3.15 says... Let the peace of God rule, the Prince of Peace, rule. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body, 
That is the church. So if peace is ruling in my heart and peace is ruling in your heart, then we're going to be able to live in peace together in the church. Peace in relationships in your home depends upon you having peace in your own heart. The reason people have trouble and conflicts in the family or in their home or at school or at work is because somebody lacks peace in his or her own heart. That's the secret to peace at a relational level is having peace in our hearts. And I want to say this also, Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace and he brings peace on earth not only through the gospel and in the church, but even in the midst of the conflicts and adversities and setbacks of life, the Prince of Peace can still speak peace be still to your heart and give you that calmness and poise of spirit that is so unusual that the world really doesn't understand. We sing a song about it, don't we? Prince of Peace control my will. Bid this struggling heart be still. Bid my fears and doubtings cease. Hush my spirit into peace. I want to tell you the Prince of Peace is able to give you a peace that passeth all understanding. That is, you can't comprehend it. You can't really explain it, but it is a gift from God that you are calm and tranquil and at peace in your heart. Even as you face the end of life, you say, oh, Brother Mike, I'm so anxious about my body breaking down and what's going to happen? Like Simeon, if you can see the Messiah, he said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. That's the secret. To keep your eyes on God's gift of salvation through Christ our Lord. Jesus said this in John 14, 27, peace. I leave with you. Now, here's the legacy of Christ to the church. You know what a legacy is? Something that an ancestor leaves to his offspring. What is Christ's legacy? He's gone. What did he leave us? His peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Do you need that message today, dear friend? Don't let your heart be troubled. Are you tied in knots on the inside? My friends, look at Jesus. He's the Prince of Peace. He can speak peace be still and calm the storms of your life and the storms of your emotions. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a peace that passes all understanding. And I close with 2 Thessalonians 3.16. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Peace. Mm -hmm.